Amen. So, Jesus is saying a number of things to the apostles as he's approaching the end of his time with the end of his life here on earth. And in that process, in chapter 15, as we close that out, he was saying to them that the Holy Spirit was going to come, that he had to leave so that the Holy Spirit would come, that they would experience that benefit. And uh, we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit, being in each one of us, allows the Lord to be not only wherever we are. Jesus' ministry, while he was on earth, was confined to the one location where Jesus was. I mean, the you know the Lord's ministry was going on through uh, obedient uh, believers uh, all over, but it, with the coming of the indwelling baptism of the Holy Spirit, there there was that dispersing of God and His Spirit throughout the world. Um. We're going to pick up in 16, and he's in that frame of mind. But something that I want to kind of chase after just a little bit so that we can keep a, a parallel understanding happening at the same time is that work begins here, Jesus ministering to them, and then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls, and the church explodes. And it go literally as he had said. That's not an interpretation of it. He said, you know, you'll receive that dudamis, which is where we get the term dynamite, the explosive power of the Holy Spirit. And man, does it explode. You know, it's, yeah, a few Christian believers in Jerusalem, but then they've come in to worship the Lord and the Holy Spirit comes upon them 3,000 that day, and they return home, and they carry Christianity with them, and 350 years of continuous growth, expanding all the way around the Mediterranean, you know, the known world is filled with Christianity, and what brings it to a stop? Why didn't it just continue to blossom and grow and flower and take over and become, you know, completely dominant? Well, man-made religion. It was Emperor Constantine who had been part of that Roman oppression who supposedly, and I can't really argue with it, had a vision, particularly of the cross, the symbol by then of the cross. Not a vision of Jesus on the cross, but the symbol of the cross. And he insisted that he had heard a voice say, in this sign, go and conquer. Something that the backstory doesn't often tell us is the Roman Empire was diminishing so rapidly at that time that they were concerned that they weren't going to be able to bolster enough followers to fit out the Roman army. Because... The move was toward Christianity. 
Constantine steps forward and says, I'm no longer a pagan. I'm now a believer in Jesus Christ, and Christianity is now the state religion. And a whole bunch of Christians surge into his service. And they go and enter the armies, and they go around the world to conquer in his name. And it is the death of Christianity. He immediately reaches out to all the pagan priests of the Roman pantheon of gods and says, you're no longer worshiping all these pagan idols. The whole empire has been converted to Christianity. And literally, men who one day had been teaching the people to follow pagan idolatry were deemed by Constantine as Christian priests. Same men. No conversion of heart. They were told, you're now a Christian priest. And the questions literally start to come back. Well, none of the Christians worship idols, and our temples have all these idols in them. What are we going to do with those? And through counsel, he then tells them, convert those idols. Make them the symbols of the Christian saints. And the people begin to pray to the saints. Rather than praying to the pagan idol, nope. This is no longer Zeus. This is Peter. Nope, this is no longer this pagan god. It's now this Christian saint. No, this is no longer Semiramis. This is now Mary. Pray to Mary. Now, you're not praying to Semiramis anymore. You're praying to Mary. A conversion. Literally, that's the end of the advancement of Christianity. It halts right there. All done. We're hearing Jesus in John 15 and now on 16 teach the apostles the importance and necessity of the Holy Spirit. And I think that the church today, especially in America, doesn't even realize that there's been a similar conversion of our modern Christianity. In that... The Holy Spirit has come. In particular, there was a massive movement of the Holy Spirit in the late 60s, early 70s here in America, America, one of the last big revivals known as the Jesus Movement. The modernization of the church as the church abandoned a whole bunch of very stale processes and adopted a new mentality. And what does America worship, right? Money. That's what America worships. Materialism, prosperity. And as the Holy Spirit explodes in the church, and we see that success spreading, all of Christianity shifts its focus from the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believers over to the success and prosperity of the megachurch. The church does the same thing Constantine did. It shifts its focus from the work of the Holy Spirit over how do we market this? How do we we make our church a success? That church over there is a success. That church over there is a mega church. How do we become the next one? And it misses the work of the Holy Spirit completely. It nullifies it by trying to take over that work. 
How does the Holy Spirit work? Well, it does this and it does that and it does that. We can do that too. It starts, the church starts trying to imitate the work of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, as we hear Jesus' message this evening, keep that parallel in mind and understand that what you and I need is the surrender to the Holy Spirit. We need to yield our lives to him and let his work carry through. John 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble, particularly his death and his, his departure is what he's referring to there. If, if his arrest and trial and beating and crucifixion had just come upon them without any forewarning, they probably would have thought somehow Jesus had failed. I mean, they thought that anyway. But the fact that he's telling them beforehand, this is going to happen to me, allows them to say, this isn't, you know, don't understand it, it's confusing to me, and they all flee and hide and, you know, react in various bad ways. But they've heard from Jesus it was going to happen. So it's not a total crushing of their own spirit. They've been prepared for it. They've been prepared for this. And he even, as we read here, you know, said to them, I've, you know, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Have you noticed that in your own life? The Lord will sort of prepare you for things sometimes. Not entirely. You just certain things you're reading. You're like, oh, that really ministers to me. Oh, that's really good. Oh, wow, that's powerful. And then you turn right around and those are the tools you need. Those are the things that are going to carry you through the next few days, the next few weeks, the next few years. Because you saw you saw the curve coming a little bit. Maybe not with perfect clarity, but you had enough assurance in your heart to know that things weren't completely wildly out of control. It doesn't always work that way. You know, sometimes, you know, circumstances do sort of lurch up on us. How, how much more... Uh, comforting and easy to take it is when you you know at least uh, you know a little bit of preparation for for what is about to befall you verse 2 they will put you out of the synagogues yes the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers god service put you out of the synagogues um two parts one in this day the synagogue was the center of civic and religious Jewish organization. In any given community where there were a group of Jews, if there were ten devout men that desired to see particularly their Jewish community and religion protected, founded, and carried on, they would form a synagogue. You'll see many occasions as Paul is preaching where even large groups of Jews simply meet at the riverside, sort of like the park in town. And that's where they hold Sabbath services and get into the word together. That's because while there might have been a large number of people 
Jewish people within that community, there weren't 10 men who either had the desire or the qualifications to form a synagogue. When a synagogue had been formed, it became the center of all of their business as Jews. Property exchange, marriages, you know, all of the legality of being a Jew. Their religion, they would meet there on Sabbath and during feast days and special occasions. It was the center of that group of Jewish believers' community. So if, especially you're in an entirely Jewish area, an entirely Jewish country like Israel, and you've been put out of the synagogue, that means you've been put out of the community. No one's going to have anything to do with you. You might have had the best tent-making business in the entire region, booming, thriving industry, and you become a Christian, they put you out of the synagogue, and no one does business with you anymore. You go from successful and perhaps even wealthy to completely impoverished and persecuted in one day's time, as soon as that decision is made. So when Jesus is saying this to them, again, this is the sort of thing that is preparing their hearts for, wow, I would be put out of the synagogue? I would be put out of my community? This is a big thing to them. And then he even makes that statement about if they kill you, they think they're doing God a service. You know, you've got to know that in the moment, this is sort of a fearful, prophetic message they're receiving. But later, as it begins to unfold and happen to them, again, the fact that Jesus had forewarned them was something that they could hold to and cling to. If you feel like especially God has failed you, it can really leave you in a lurch, leave you in a place where your faith is shaken or perhaps even dies. If you know what's coming, it can be a great help. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Regardless of how much they insist they know and love God and are serving him, they don't. These things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Now, there's both the local fulfillment of that, and then there's the long-term fulfillment of that. So, you know, this idea of remember that I told you of them beforehand. The church today is abandoning prophecy more and more doesn't find it important doesn't find it necessary i, I shared uh last week that uh, there was a group of people here and uh, after service they came up and were talking to me and we were talking about how we go verse by verse through the bible and they even said well yeah but you know the book of Revelation, not really any way to know what all of that means. And I said, well, can I show you a couple things? And I took them right to Revelation chapter 1, 
verse 9, where John actually gives an outline for the entire book of Revelation so that you can know what everything means in the book. First thing he says is write down everything that you've seen. So he's having a vision, and he writes down everything that he's seen up to that point. Then he says, write down the things which will take place, or excuse me, write down the things which are. So write the things that you've seen. Then he says, write the things which are. The very next thing he begins to write are seven letters to the churches. The church is. At that point, the church is in existence, and right now we sit here today, and the church is in existence. And then he says, the Lord, speaking to John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, write the things which will take place, meta tauta, after these things. After what things? After the church. The things he's seen, the church, and then the things that will take place after the church. So you read the seven letters to the churches, and they apply even to us sitting here this evening. And then you get to the end of those seven letters to the churches, and chapter 4 begins with metatauta, after this, after what? After the churches. And then you get to see everything that takes place in the book of Revelation. The horrible trials that the world is going to go through as God pours out his wrath on an unbelieving world after the churches, which is a further testimony to the fact that the church is going to be taken off the earth, including including that it says Metatauta, chapter 4, Revelation, and then it says, I saw a door standing open in heaven and a voice like a trumpet saying to me, come up here. That's what we're waiting for. After the churches, a door to open in heaven and a voice like the trumpet of God, the archangel calling us up to heaven. If you follow the scripture and the Holy Spirit, the word of God is revealed to your heart and mind. Revealed. The book of Revelation, its title is The Revealing. Somebody, I literally had a conversation with a man years ago said, it's impossible to understand. It's a closed book, he said. We're not supposed to read it, he said, and there's no way to understand it, he said. I said, then why was it named Revelation, The Revealing, and why does it say in the opening chapter, blessed is anyone who reads it and anyone who hears it? That doesn't leave me thinking that I shouldn't read it and that it's impossible to understand. The Lord, see, remember that I told you of them. All of the things in the scripture that we can look to as prophecy and remember, Jesus said that. You look around, watch the news, see the stuff going on, you can look right up and go, Jesus said that. People go, oh, can you believe this or that's happening? Jesus said, that's going to happen. Jesus said this is going to happen. Jesus told us what we are looking forward to. Good, bad, and ugly. He told us what's coming. So here is a similar thing. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because 
I was with you. I was with you. I'm not going to be with you. And you're going to need these things to hold on to. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? They're afraid to ask that. They don't understand what that means. He's saying, where I'm going, you can't come. And they're confused. They don't ask. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, I want to pause and discuss, hopefully briefly, what it has a few different names. Uh, One-ism, Jesus-only movement. Long ago, it was referred to as modalism. And those are important terms for you to remember. One-ism, Jesus-only, and modalism. So these are all the same. Modalism as in different modes. Modalism. Okay. This teaching says that God comes in different forms. That the Trinity is not real. That at times in the scripture and experientially, God is God the Father. And then at other times, he has been Jesus. And then at other times, he is the Holy Spirit. And there is the term modalism. He takes on a different mode at different times. You know, the Jesus-only movement says, they've just refashioned modalism. They say, it's all Jesus. It's just depending on what setting he's in. Okay? There are many different places throughout the scripture. I just want to point out the one that is the most blatant and the most obvious at Jesus' baptism. When he comes up out of the water, the voice says from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, as the Holy Spirit descends upon him and remains like a dove. All three persons are seen there separately. Jesus is in the water. The voice is said from heaven as the Holy Spirit descends. It's difficult for us to understand. But that application we often use of our being created in God's image. Now let me be clear. We are a type of triune being. Okay? When the scripture says we are created in God's image, we often point and say body, soul, and spirit. Very true. Okay, We have three parts to ourselves. But to try and compare the human existence to God's existence is absolutely impossible. The best illustration that I have heard in regard to this is if we were to go into my office where there's a very large mirror, we could point at the mirror and say of my reflection, it is an image of me, right? We are created in God's image. 
So there are very detailed similarities, but we don't even come close to being in the existence of God. You say, well, of course not. Why do you make that point? Well, there are literally false teachers who say we are gods because we are created in the image of God. And if you're thinking I'm referring to some Eastern mystic, no, in this case, I'm specifically referring to Benny Hinn who says we are gods. Small g, but still gods. And we can create with our spoken word. Word of faith movement, you just speak it into existence. Okay, uh, yeah, this is what I mean by the fact that we're created in God's image, but we're not God. We don't have any of the attributes that he has in certain aspects of our existence. We have something that is reflective of his triune existence. You know, okay, fine. But we really can't stretch far beyond that. There is a body, the flesh. There is the soul, which we might say the emotion and the thought process. And there is the spirit, which unfortunately Adam very graciously poisoned to death for all of us. So our spirit was stillborn. We are living zombies. And Jesus Christ imparted his spirit to us to replace our dead spirit so that we could experience life again in relationship with God. So, this coming of the Holy Spirit is what he's encouraging us toward and telling us of, and it's very necessary for us to experience that Holy Spirit come upon us. I've told you things beforehand. It's better that I go to the one who sent me. You're filled with sorrow. It's to your advantage to help overcome. But if I depart, I will send him to you. When he comes, verse 9, verse 8, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of meeting someone who has no sense of the Holy Spirit in their life. And I mean no sense. They're not convicted about sin. I've met a few. I've met some people who are especially, you know, bad characters. But I've literally met people who have no conviction about sin whatsoever. And they're really kind of frightening. There, There is... Nothing that restrains them at all. The Holy Spirit is going to convict of sin. You know, when he comes of righteousness and judgment, that idea. I, I make the point because I've met many people who the devil has convinced them that they've somehow committed the unpardonable sin. And they're very worried that God's never going to accept me. To which I say, you seem very convicted about that. Yes, I am. Ah, then you haven't, you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin. The person who doesn't have any concern about the Holy Spirit or God or judgment or any of that. uh, That one I tend to think perhaps has. As they just blister their way through life destroying everything in their path. The person who's worried 
about it is being convicted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is pleading with humanity. This is what John chapter 3 is talking about as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus there. and He says, I didn't come into the world to convict the world, but that the world through me might be saved. You know, my, I've come as a source of salvation. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, does convict us. And we see those different levels of existence in the scripture where the Holy Spirit runs parallel to us in life. The paracletus, you know, the, the paralegal is certified legally to work alongside a lawyer. He runs parallel to it. The paramedic is legally certified to work alongside the physician. You know, an EMT is not certified to administer the drugs and do what a paramedic is. A paramedic has qualifications that allow them to administer drugs and do a number of things that others cannot. Parallel. Paracletus, the Holy Spirit, runs parallel to us to comfort us. Remember before you knew the Lord and surrendered to him, all of those things that seem to, as you look back now, steer you towards eventually giving in to the Lord? That was the Holy Spirit. Working Paracletus coming alongside you, guiding you and delivering you into that moment where you surrendered. For some people, there's a specific moment where they prayed and they surrendered themselves. Others just realized over time they'd given in. And then the Holy Spirit was in them, inside them. Later, the baptism is available or simultaneously, but at a different level of existence. Here, the Spirit is going to come and convince people of you know, sin, righteousness, judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Listen, it's important that you understand that God has allowed Satan to be the ruler of this world. It's important that we put the definitions in the proper place, right? Because we hear people saying things about God, like if there's a loving God, you know, how could he send people to hell? How could he allow that tragedy? How could God do this? God's not doing a lot of those things. You read in Genesis, and God creates the earth, and he creates Adam and Eve, and what he does is he hands that creation to Adam. He says, I want you to have dominion over this. Then you come through all of the tragedy and heartache, all the way to the book of Romans, and you read Paul saying to us, Do you not know that whom you obey, that is your master? Lucifer showed up in the garden and said to Eve first, I'm summarizing, but it was, obey, obey me, not God. Follow my voice and my leading, my teaching and not God's. And she did. And she gave that temptation opportunity to her husband, and he obeyed. Indirectly, Lucifer. Whom you obey, that is your master. Our federal head, 
Adam took all of that dominion and authority that had been given to him by God and he handed it right over to Lucifer. The God of this world. Not my opinion, not my interpretation. Jesus Christ is saying it here. And he also says it elsewhere. And then Paul echoes it again. The God of this world has blinded the hearts and minds of men. Lucifer himself, the wicked, terrible things we see going on around us, and even the persecution that he's going to talk about at the end of this chapter that's going to come upon us and is coming upon us is because the God of this world is Satan himself. The great wickedness that's all around us. The Holy Spirit is going to bring that righteousness, that judgment, that conviction of sin you know, I look at the nonsense that's going on right now. The atmosphere. You know, the, the political movement over the past couple of weeks, there's been good, bad, and ugly, and ugly, and ugly, all involved in that. But listen, I don't care how good the current circumstances might swing toward us. If you haven't noticed, that pendulum always swings back the opposite direction. And if you haven't noticed, the swing seems to get farther each time. The pass tends to be more exaggerated as it goes. There's a coming persecution. There's a coming wickedness. The church is going to experience a very, very difficult time ahead. How long? I don't know. You know, personally, I'm more like rip the Band-Aid off. Let's get it over with. I see a lot of people that are trying to slow the process down, and I'm with you. I want to be salt and light. But my goodness, the things that are going on in the world around us. It's horrendous. Think about this for a minute, you guys. This week, we have heard things described in the news about the possible conduct of a man that are so sinful and perverse. It's embarrassing. It's a big change for our culture to just have. Does anybody remember when? Not that many years ago, there was a certain president who conducted himself in certain ways, and many things were being discussed in the news about a young woman's dress and many other circumstances, that at the time, everybody was shocked. Can you believe we've come to the place where this is being discussed in public? Listen to what's been discussed all this past week in public. Horrendous deterioration in a very short period of time. There's a militant homosexual movement that is just driving our culture towards the brink. It isn't just them. There's a godlessness to our culture and our society worldwide that is going to eventually invoke this judgment. That is God God is going to bring. The Holy Spirit come and 
finish, complete, and carry out this work. I still have many things, verse 12 says, to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That's an important thing to remember as a believer. As you're trying to share things with people, to lead them to the Lord, to cause them to grow and mature, be sensitive to your audience. Because sometimes we want them to just eat the whole thing all at once. You know, we kind of take our faith like a two-inch fire hose and ram it down their throat and just open up the valve. We tend to blow them all over the landscape and accomplish very little other than offending someone very deeply. Share, don't get me wrong. I would say be even aggressive, don't get me wrong. Simultaneously, be sensitive. Be sensitive to the one who's receiving your message. Right? We want to be effective. That's the whole point, right? We want our message to be received. Very very easy to make it such that before we're even a short distance into our message, they've already emotionally rammed their fingers so far into their ears that they're not experiencing anything but pain in the process of trying to block out the message. Share the message. Say what needs to be said. But be careful. Consider what we're doing in the process. So here, many things to say. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit's power. I had a conversation with a young woman uh, this morning after service. She's a school teacher. She's got 12 students. They all have all kinds of various circumstances in their life. She's working in the government school system. And I just talked to her about, man, you're in a prime mission field. Got great opportunity to just speak and share and love and encourage and guide people. And as we talked about it, I had to take some time to really dwell on the power of prayer. When you're in somebody's life like that, and you're hearing all of the circumstance of their home and their families and the divorce and the drug addiction and the difficulties and challenges, you can go at home every night with a very specific prayer list. You might actually get opportunity to physically, personally interact, but you can secretly send the Holy Spirit right into that home. You can pray and affect hearts and minds. Change people. Bring them into the kingdom. You can fight off the forces which are destroying their family on your knees. We so underestimate the power of prayer. So underestimate. What a wonderful thing it is. When the, when the Lord gives us those opportunities, we pray and then there's the answer. And we go, that has to be miraculous. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it? Isn't that great? But how quickly we then don't apply that to any other area. We can then turn around and launch 
into somebody else's environment, and it's almost like, yeah, but they're not even receptive, so nothing's going to happen. I'm receptive, and I prayed, and it happened, and God answered. Why was that? To show me he answers prayer. We need to be men and women of prayer. And the church needs to be a church of prayer. And if we will, we'll see powerful things happen. We'll see people's hearts and minds and lives changed. The Holy Spirit sent from you, directed into someone else's life, can teach them what they need to hear, can lead them to the place they need to go. It's a wonderful thing to see a life changed by the Lord. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's very important in regard to the false teachers that we're surrounded by. Right? Jesus is the word, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. God is going to honor his word above even his own name, the scripture tells us. There is no way that God is going to have the teacher sit and instruct the body of Christ contrary to the word. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Number one. The Holy Spirit working in us is going to glorify Jesus Christ. It's going to lift him up and elevate him, hold him above all things. It's going to glorify Jesus in the process. And he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. These strange, contrary revelations that certain teachers have, and they just insist Yes, this is very different than what everyone else has heard. Yes, it even contradicts the word of God. But I have heard directly from the Holy Spirit that this is a new truth for us to all understand. No, it's not. No, it's not. Anything that comes from the leading of the Holy Spirit is going to come from Jesus Christ, which is going to be the word of God. It's going to, now, you might learn something new along the way that you didn't know before, but then as you search the word with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you're going to discover, oh, that's actually right here in the word. I've just never seen this nugget. I've never noticed this treasure previously, but now I do. It's never going to contradict the word of God. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. You know, about three days and three nights. You won't see me, then you'll see me. You know, that's pretty straightforward for us to understand on this side of the New Testament, a little while, and again a little while, you will see me because I go to the Father. He's going to ascend. 
Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. Again, a little while you will see me. And because I go to the Father. This whole thing that they don't understand. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. What do you, well, we do not know what he is saying. Now, Jesus knew what they desired to ask him and said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while you will see me again. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. You think about the joy of Mary there at the tomb. And how she just, she clung to him. And he said, don't cling to me for I go to my father. And again, the, the Greek language doesn't translate well into English. A, a much better understanding is you don't need to cling to me. I haven't ascended to my father yet. I'm going to be here for a little while, you know. You know, she's of that mindset of, I loved you with everything that was in my heart, and you died, and now you've been restored to me. I'm never going to let you go again. We can be of a similar way in our relationship with the Lord, <clears throat> not wanting to turn to that strength and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we get to the place in our growth and our faith where we kind of hit a wall and, you know, our flesh kind of insists, look, I've gone as far as I can. I really need to see, experience, have Jesus. And what the Lord is saying is all along the way, I'm right here to be in you. When, when we're new to the faith, when we're young in the Lord, it's interesting how much the Lord just seems to physically interact with us. And then there really does seem to come sort of a point where, like, wait, like where'd he go? If we'll pay attention to this right here, what we'll come to understand is he's still right there. He's still right there. And what he's doing is not want, follow this, not wanting us to feel him because we need to learn that he is trustworthy whether we feel him there or not. He hasn't changed. His word is re as reliable as it was when we were just filled with that zealous fire. That passion and emotion has, oh, the emotion's great, right? And it, it comes back. He doesn't withhold it forever. That's a wonderful thing. But boy, don't we have to learn to walk even when the emotion is not there. To obediently follow even when the emotion is not there. Why? Because there are going to be times where the circumstances are going to be so severe that we couldn't possibly have a euphoric emotion in those moments. It's going to be challenging, and we're going to have to rely upon the truth of God's word, the testimony of his spirit, and systematically walk through our circumstances. We're going to have to follow him in obedience 
sometimes. You know, I had a conversation with a man years ago who was saying this very similar thing from a slightly different perspective. He was talking about wanting to serve the Lord, but he was certain that he couldn't anymore because that emotion had departed from him, that sensation of God's presence. And I mean, he's doing fine. He's doing great as a believer. But, you know, in his mind, he's pretty sure it's over. And I said to him very gently, look, as far as serving in the ministry together, I would much rather serve alongside the person who could sense the Holy Spirit and trust the still small voice than the person who always had that loud, clear sense of God's presence because that's not always going to be there. The person who's like, I just, you know, God's got a direct line, you know. He just rings and I just pick up and we're, you know, conversing. That's not always true. When the fire and the storm is all around you, you know, can, can you can you hear the voice of the Lord? When for six days you've gotten about three hours of sleep and you haven't eaten right and you're running on caffeine and the kids are screaming and the trucks broke down and the paycheck didn't come through. Can you hear the voice of the Lord there when life is just blasting you with everything it's got? Can, can you find the voice of the Lord there? Because trust me, the person that can, that's the one you want to be around. The person that has to have it always calm and always clear and they get up every morning and the handwriting's right on the wall. That's not always the reality we function in, is it? And I'm not just talking about, you know, you and I. Look at these men. You know, when you're Paul and you're a prisoner and you're on a ship and you've been in <laughs> the Euroclidon for, what, seven days now. <clears throat> Nobody can even eat. They've just been... Seasoned, seasoned sailors have been so sick for a week they haven't eaten. That's some harsh circumstance. And what does Paul say? I have heard clearly from the Lord. We're going to lose everything we've got, <clears throat> but every life will be spared. And you go, yeah, oh man, that's right. And the ship got busted up and they... They got washed ashore. Oh, that's cool. Paul's dialed in, man. How dialed in do you think he was when he felt that sharp pain and looked down at his hand and there's a viper hanging off of it? Because I don't know about you, but when I've been through all of the tragedy and I'm just about out the other side, and then I realized the devil has latched right onto me. I don't have a calm, peaceable sense of, no, I've heard from the Lord. Everything's going to be fine. Right? Tend to flail around, freak out, have a fit. Paul, so clear. 
just shakes the snake off into the fire and goes back to collecting wood. If you just got wood out of the pile in the woods and got bitten by a snake, are you going right back in to get more? Or are you suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder? Right? You're scared of every stick you see from that point on. You know what I'm saying? Paul isn't. Because he's learned the clarity. He's learned the clarity of Jesus' voice speaking to his heart. He knows and understands the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is so necessary for believers to get to this point where we transition over from, you know, like always being able to feel Jesus' robe right there. He's right there. To know I've had to let go of the tangible and know that he is in my heart. That I am trusting what he's doing. It's a powerful thing these men are going through. And honestly, you guys, if you read through this and you mull it over later, you're going to realize that like all of these things just sort of got like plunked down in their brain. And it wasn't until later that they began to realize that's what he meant. Right? As we sit here and we study these things out, very often it's a week from now, a month from now, six a year later that we go, oh, oh, I get it now. Now this is making sense. The Lord working here. You know, they don't understand. They're, you know, are you inquiring? Most assuredly, I say to you, you'll weep, but you're going to rejoice. Then he gives that illustration. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, the pain and the agony. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. And not in the same way. I mean, ladies, you do. I'm not trying to imply, neither is the Lord. But the joy that a human being has been born into the world just eclipses that. I mean, you don't forget. That's not what he's even implying. He's just saying that you now have the fulfillment of all that pain. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. No one will take your joy from you. Listen, as they're marching these men to their deaths, they're literally saying, look, I don't want to die, number one, but go ahead and kill me. Because I'm going to see Jesus face to face. How do I know? It isn't because. It isn't because. They've just got these neat, detailed teachings. Because they've seen Jesus rise from the dead. And he has said to them, As much as you saw me die, and as much as you see me raised again, I have power over your death in your life. And they rested in that assurance. This is what Jesus is meaning when he says, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Those who have not been face to face with the arrest, trial, scourging, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. We didn't see that. We weren't witness to it. And yet we hold 
to that belief. We've seen enough of the evidence of that resurrection working in our lives to know this is a trustworthy thing. I can hold to this. I have enough of the residual effect of the Holy Spirit working in my life to know this is true. No one can take it away from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And I'll go over that again, forgive the repetition, but asking in his name is not, you know, the genie in the lamp. You just got to ask in Jesus' name. You know, just put that on the end, and it'll... Asking in his name, according to the Greek language, is the idea of parallel to being in love. Asking in Jesus' name, right? I mean, if I neglect my wife and physically abuse her and emotionally abuse her and neglect her and do terrible things to her and then say, oh, I'm in love with Lori. The answer is going to be, no, you're not. No, you're not. Many people say, oh, I'm, I'm in Jesus. I abide in Christ. And they don't at all. They say, I ask this in Jesus' name. And they're not in Jesus' name. They're not abiding in him. They're not enveloped in him. They're not functioning in him. See, this is what is meant about asking in Jesus' name. Are you currently in Jesus' name? Are you in Jesus' name? Well, then ask what you will. Right? This is why so many of these false teachers act like, oh, we just ask in Jesus' name, and you know, and they like they're gonna get it. The reason they're getting all the stuff is because they're liars and manipulators. Everyone who's sitting in the crowd listening is getting nothing. Nothing. They're just robbing the body of Christ. That's how they're getting wealthy. That's how they're taking care of things. You know, health, wealth, and prosperity movement while they're simultaneously living and gross sexual sin while they're simultaneously stealing millions of dollars from the church while they're simultaneously scurrying their wife off to Canada for six months to have her treated for cancer. Because they're... they're they're a health, wealth, and prosperity teacher, and their wife is dying from cancer, so the world can't see that. How lonely, heartbroken, and shameful it is for the wife of a healer to be hidden away. Imagine the self-condemnation. It's ridiculous. In Jesus' name, that's not, that's not a magic phrase tagged on the end of a sentence so that God, you know, like, oh, the postage has been paid. I'll open this letter. I'll answer this one. Look, it's sealed right here in Jesus' name. That's not how this works. If we are in Christ, if we are in fellowship with him, if we are walking with him, if we are in obedience to him, those who love me obey my commandments, right? Jesus said. 
This is being in Jesus. You know, I'll, I'll do that one more time. You know, you go back to the Ten Commandments and he says, do not take my name in vain. And so many people think of that as, you know, cursing, using Jesus' name as a swear word. Certainly, certainly it has that connotation. Without question, it is that idea. But it's also more, more the idea of don't take my name unto yourself in a vain way. Don't take my name in vain. How many people, how many of us at times have assigned, right, that term Christian, Christian, those at Antioch mocked them saying, oh, here comes the little Christ, as the, the Christians would approach, oh, here comes the little Jesus. That's what the term Christian means, a little Jesus, a little Christ. We are Christians. How many people have taken that title unto themselves in a completely empty way? Oh, I'm a Christian. Are you truly a small representation of Jesus Christ? Or have you simply assigned to yourself a title and phrase that really doesn't have anything to do with you? You're taking his name in vain, in an empty way. I'll take one of those, put it, you know, assign it to yourself, put it on your shirt. Are you really in Christ? Are you abiding in him? Are you attached to that vine? Are you experiencing his life flowing through you? Because then, ask what you will, which is part of why he says, up until now you've asked me for nothing, right? When we truly get into Christ's name, we begin to realize, oh, no, I don't need to ask for that. Lord, I pray, no, never mind. That's not aligned with your will. I need a 70-inch, no, I don't. I could really minister to my friends if I only had, well, no, no. It starts getting real simple when we actually get into Jesus. Because we start really examining ourselves. And like the prophets, we realize, I am a man of unclean lips. Daniel, what a magnificent prophet, right? Amazing. Lion's den. Just wow. Sees the presence of the Lord and becomes loathsome sick and just collapses with the fatigue, anxiety, and illness of just being human in the presence of God. When you really get into Jesus, you begin to discover who you are. Prayers change at that point. Your whole existence begins to shift. Things take on an entirely different light. Until now, you've asked me nothing in my name. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. These men have gone out and performed ministry and cast out demons. Why have you not asked anything in my name? Because we're going to get to John chapter 20, and he's going to breathe on them and say, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Notice Judas is not amongst them at that point. 
And it is quite possible that that is their moment of salvation. How strange to consider. I don't know, but it's a very interesting prospect that he's saying up until now, you haven't asked anything in my name. Right? Peter rips out the sword and hacks somebody's ear off. And Jesus goes, what am I leading a bunch of rebels? Will you put that thing away? You really don't get my ministry, do you? Why? Because even what they're doing, perhaps they're doing entirely in the flesh up to this point. You haven't yet asked anything in my name. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting. It's going to be a great day. You won't believe it. Holy Spirit's going to fall. You're going to preach. 3,000 people are going to believe. It's going to be magnificent. It will be. Right now it's not. It will be. When you start asking in my name. Where does that take place? I guess the Lord will have to reveal that to us. Till now. You've asked nothing in my name. Ask, you will receive, and your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. That'll be wonderful, right? 1 Corinthians there he tells us, you know, now we see dimly. Then we will know as we are known. What a wonderful thing it will be to be in his presence. The Holy Spirit gives us a portion of that now. In that day, you will ask my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me. And have believed that I came forth from the Father. They're, they're with the program. They get it. It's just the progress that's going to occur. And the coming of the Holy Spirit that they're going to experience. I came forth from the Father. And I've come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things. And have no need that anyone should question you. But this we believe, by this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? Question mark. Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, a couple of things about this last section. The first of, you know, oh, now, finally, you're speaking plainly. Am I speaking plainly? You guys still don't get it. <laughs> right? Just as they think they're on board. Oh, you believe? You're all going to be scattered. We're with you. Right up until we run away. You know, that's... And he knows that about them. That's what he's saying. As much as they can believe, they do believe. And he's giving them that credit. You love me, and the Father loves you because of it. But you don't really understand what you're saying. You, you really don't understand what you're even implying. Now, he goes to this point... And he says, you'll have peace in me, 
but you'll have tribulation in the world. And there are those that want to say, see, we're going through the tribulation. Jesus said it right there. This tribulation that's being spoken of here in the original language is saying very plainly short-term trials. The tribulation that is going to occur for seven years has a capital T on the before the word tribulation, which also has a capital T, and it's an entirely different tribulation, which is long-term, widespread, and it is sent by God. This tribulation, Jesus is speaking of, is sent by the God of this world. We're going to have trials. We're going to have difficulties. And they are short term. Even if they last all of our lives, they are short term. You know, billions of years from now, we'll look back to our brief decades on this planet and they'll be so immeasurably small I wonder if we'll even recall them. These short tribulations we went through they're not even comparable. This assurance that he gives us you're going to experience tribulation but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is actually the same overcoming, the same conquering that Jesus speaks of in overthrowing demons. Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. Jesus said, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, just stop on this first verse, Joe. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, casting out demons by the finger of God. This is interpreted a, a couple different ways. There are those that say the way the language is written is as though God has more strength in his finger than all the power of hell. He could, you know, arm wrestling, all he's got to use is one finger. Doesn't even have to incorporate his arm. Okay, that's, that's there. Or the idea of he could just like flick it off. Like, you know what I'm saying? That. It's actually got a, a slightly... It, those are applicable, but there's actually a slightly different uh, sort of implication here. It is the idea that Jesus shows up on the scene where there's demonic activity and full-blown possession going on, and all he has to do is this. I drive out... You know, the power that they couldn't drive out. Well, you know, in Jesus' name, I command you to leave. And it can. And the father brings a child and says, your disciples tried to cast this one out. And Jesus says, well, for you guys, for you guys, certain powers only leave with prayer and fasting. For you guys. Okay. I'm not implying that because then he just turns around and says, get lost. And it's gone. Just like that. Jesus doesn't have to pray and fast. Right? The power of God just says, that's your exit right there. Just be gone. The power of God. It's important that you understand that's the authority Jesus Christ has. Man at the Gadarean tombs, Jesus shows up, flings himself on the ground, and it says, and he worshipped Jesus. Who? Demon-possessed man or demon? Right? I know you're the son of God. 
Don't destroy me. Don't cast me into the abyss before the appointed time. He's surrendering to the authority of Jesus Christ right there in the moment. This is the power Christ has in us over the world that's going to bring us tribulations. Don't be overwhelmed. He's saying, don't be overwhelmed. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world with the power of God. They can just say, get lost. Stop bugging my kid. Go back to your own yard. Right? I don't know if you ever had that, the per, the bullies harassing your kid. You don't have to say a thing, do you? As soon as dad shows up and just goes, bully goes home. Just leave. Right? You hear people say, oh, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. How about, as the scripture says, draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't have the power of God in your finger to just say, devil, get at it. You know, I don't know why I go into southern, you know, televangelist preacher every time. But verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. Meaning the demon possessed person has a demon that's fully armed guarding that dwelling place. Jesus shows up, drives him out with the finger of God. When a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, I have overcome the world. The whole world. Not just the particular low-life demon who's been assigned to your case. The whole world. Jesus has overcome. Come it, right? The light has come into the world and darkness, it says, did not comprehend it, did not conquer it, could not overcome it. The darkness could not overcome the light of Jesus Christ. When a stronger than he, God himself, comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. Hey, guess what? Where are the spoils? Again, not my interpretation, right? The man finds a treasure hidden in the field. The earth is the field. We are the treasure. He sells everything that he had, his very life, and he buys the field for himself, for the treasure that is hidden in it. Christ, Christ has purchased us to overcome these tribulations and the world that delivers them to us, that we can have peace. Remember that, remember that, when the serpent is latched onto your flesh and you're flailing around in fear and agony about the teeth that are pumping their venom into your life. Remember, Christ has overcome that creature, the devil himself, given us not only victory, but peace in the process. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you so much for your great love. We thank you for caring about us enough to overcome all the power of hell itself the destruction 
that was assigned to us by our own sin, having freed us from the God of this world. Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with the strength of your Spirit, that we could walk in fellowship with you, experience your love in the life that you desire for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Stay in fellowship as long as you want to.